This morning's passage is from Genesis 32, verses 1 through 21. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Sur, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell you, my lord, in order that I might find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are four hundred men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, Moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. Good morning. There's this new phrase in my house called back, way back in the 1900s. Uh, <laughs> way back in the 1900s, I was heading east on I-96 on my way home from college. In the moment it took me to glance at a car passing on my left, in that moment, another car pulled right in front of me from the other side at a very slow rate of speed. I knew in an instant I had two choices. Uh, I had to do one of two things immediately. One was slam into the back of the car in front of me. There was no option to just hit the brakes and avoid that. I would either slam into the car in front of me or turn the wheel hard to the left and take my chances on the left side. Well, I chose the second one. I, I hit the brakes and pulled the steering wheel as hard as I could to the left, narrowly missing the car in front of me. What a relief, right? I didn't hit the car. 
Well, sort of. It was a relief in that I didn't uh, immediately experience a crash. But in order to uh, avoid it, I turned so hard that I started sliding, spinning, across three rain-soaked lanes of interstate traffic. I can tell you the rest of the story if you want later. It's an interesting ending to this story. But the point is this. The solution to my initial problem was the direct cause of another, potentially greater problem. In other words, as the old adage goes, I I got out of the frying pan only to get into the fire. Well, that's exactly what happened to Joseph uh, in our story for this, or Jacob in our story for this morning. Having been commanded by God to do so, Jacob fled from his father-in-law Laban after being exploited by him for 20 years. But having also been commanded by God to do so, Jacob headed toward his homeland where he had previously fled to avoid the murderous intentions of his brother Esau. And that way he too jumped out of the frying pan only into the fire. Well, here's the thing, Grace. Because we live in a fallen, busted world, this is not an unusual experience, is it? We often find ourselves stuck between two difficult alternatives. To leave one is to go into the other, and to avoid the other is to stay in the one. Well, what are we to do when this happens? That is, how do we honor God when we're faced with two seemingly equally undesirable outcomes? Well, as we consider God's presence in this passage and Jacob's response In this passage, we'll get a few tips, a few things to do and a few things not to do. Let's pray that we'd learn from both in order that we'd better honor God and know how to honor God, at least, when this kind of an inevitable situation comes our way. And for many of us, you're probably already in it to some degree. And so what do you do? How do you handle that? Let's pray. God, we love you, and we love the fact that you have promised us that whatever comes our way, if our hope is in Jesus, whatever comes our way is being worked now for our good. We love that promise. We love that banner that flies constantly over our lives. And yet what that means in real time is often hard. It's often hard to believe that when we feel batted back and forth between hardships. God, we thank you that we have explicit passages in the Bible, like the beginning of James and great, great promises in Ephesians and Colossians and Philippians and even in Romans. God, we thank you that there are great high and lofty promises of how you are working for our good in the midst of our trials, that there is no wasted trial that the cross secured that and guaranteed that, the resurrection modeled that, and that you're interceding right now for that, and the Spirit lives in us to empower us and remind us and strengthen us in all that. We, we thank you for those, but we also thank you that there are narrative passages, stories like this one that help us to see it played out, both rightly and wrongly. And so, God, help us to read this passage as you really mean us to, namely the, the story of your covenant faithfulness in the midst of your people's covenant wavering. That's the main point of this, on the way to Jesus. But help us to see in that ourselves and let us learn all that we're meant to through the 
godliness and ungodliness of your people, through the faithfulness and unfaithfulness of your people. Above all, help us to see your perfect faithfulness, that you never waver, that every one of your promises is certain, and we know that in Christ. But help us to learn how to live increasingly for your glory in this fallen, broken world. I pray that you would do that for us, that we would be changed by this passage. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So as the drama unfolds, it's just like one unending drama, it seems. As the drama unfolds in our passage, and we find Jacob making real-time decisions, seeking to obey God's command on his life, we also see him moving from one difficulty to another. (laughs) To obey God is to move from one difficulty to another. And with that, we find in this passage alternative, alternating examples of what not to do and what to do. What not to do and what to do. What not to do. Five of them. So consider Genesis 32, the beginning of it with me. And they're in five do's and, and don'ts when it comes to navigating hardship and faith. Here they are. Here's all five of them. This is the outline of the sermon as well. Do not fall into the lot. So picture yourself, maybe picture a hardship you're currently in. Uh, maybe imagine one you've been in and or one that you anticipate coming. So think of yourself in hardship, wondering how do I honor God at this time? Here's five things. Number one, don't fall into the lie of believing you are ever alone. It can seem like it. It can feel like it, but it's you're not. Number two, do act with integrity throughout. There will be lots of easier paths to take in forsaking integrity. Don't do that. Number three, don't be afraid. Do not fear. If your hope is in Christ, the promises of God are such that you need fear nothing in this world. Number four, do pray, remembering God's promises and past blessings in hope. And lastly, number five, don't trust ultimately in your plans or your power, but in God's. Let's consider these. Here's the first one. Don't fall into the lie of believing you are ever alone in hardship. We see that mainly in the first two verses. Take a minute, put yourself in Jacob's shoes. You got to do it to appreciate any of this, but especially this this passage Take a minute and put yourself in his shoes. Having just narrowly escaped the wrath of his father-in-law, that is, according to the title of the sermon, having escaped the frying pan, Jacob was now forced to turn his eyes to what awaited him as he drew near Canaan in obedience to God, namely his brother Esau, the fire. God had commanded him to go to the prom, had commanded him to go and promised to be with him, but just imagine Just imagine Jacob turning his eyes from Laban to his homeland. He had left it, if you remember, because of the murderous threats of his brother. His eyes turned back to this. (laughs) Imagine yourself, what a, (laughs) even with the promises of God, imagine what a, a lonely, somber journey this promised to be. Well, in spite of God's promises, I have to imagine it would have been easy for him to believe the lie that he was going to have to endure this alone. Have you ever been there, Grace? Have you ever been there? Have you ever felt alone in a trial, even while believing? You really did believe it, 
that God was with you in some sense, but you still felt alone? Have you ever endured that? Have you ever known in your mind that God was there, but struggled to really experience his presence when you needed it the most? These are easy traps to fall into. As always, we need to be careful of reading things into the biblical narratives that aren't there, but we also need to be careful of reading them as if they didn't really happen to real people with real struggles and difficulties. In the end, whether Jacob struggled initially with feelings of loneliness or or, or fear at the outset, whether he did or not, it couldn't have lasted long. <laughs> For almost immediately, God revealed himself to him once again. Look at verse 1. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met with him. He had just escaped the frying pan, saw the fire in front of him. I, I imagine he's, I, I would be nervous, <laughs> and, and, and yet God sent his angels to meet with him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of this, the place Manam. I want you to notice a few things. First, the language and encounter with the heavenly beings in this passage as Jacob returned to the land is almost identical to the language and encounter in Bethel when he left the land. So back in 28, he he left this land to go to be with Laban. And in this passage, in that passage, he encountered God and it describes it in a certain way. It's almost identical language here. God had met with Jacob at his house, Bethel, in chapter 28, and here he meets with him at his camp, Manam. The point is simple. God never left Jacob. God was un- unwaveringly faithful to his promises to him. It didn't seem that way at all times to Jacob, but it was. In the same way that it doesn't always seem to us like God is with us in our trials, he is. Second, the text tells us that the angels of God, get this, this is important. The angels of God met with Jacob only after he went on his way. Jacob turned his face and set out to the land of Canaan, and then the angels came to him. As always, we need to avoid reading too much into this. But it is significant that Jacob obeyed first, and I'll tell you why it's significant. His father and grandfather experienced this type of responsive blessing of God as well. You remember the story of Abraham and Isaac, right? Go offer, God commanded Abraham, your son Isaac, your firstborn, your only son, the son of the promise, the one through whom I told you I would raise up a multitude of nations, put him on the altar and kill him. That was God's command to Abraham. You'll remember... that God provided a substitute sacrifice only after Isaac was on the altar and the knife was in the air. The point is simply this, that God's grace comes to us when God feels like bringing his grace to us. We want it at certain times, right? We want it usually on the front end. But God's grace comes to us when God determines to give it. Again, we might wish that it always came before our obedience, and in a certain sense it does. But it is not always so. And when it doesn't grace, we have to remember. Remember, these are real ways to look at the hardships you endure. 
God's grace will come to you in it when and how he determines. And when it doesn't come on the front end, at least in a visible way that we would like, that's its own kind of grace. Do you remember what God said to Abraham? Perhaps the kind of grace that will come to us is the kind where we might hear the same words as God spoke to Abraham, the father of our faith. For now I know that you fear the Lord. It was for him to know that his faith was authentic and real. Perhaps that's why God's grace will come later than we would want it. Third, God manifests his presence in greater and lesser ways at different times in our life. We see that here. Sometimes his presence is hard to detect, and other times it is unmistakable and glorious. Remember, the banner is don't in your hardship, don't fall into the lie of believing you are ever alone. Sometimes God's presence in your life is clear and obvious, like in this passage. Sometimes it's more subtle, like in other encounters that Jacob had with God. The angels of God met with him here. It doesn't get more, much more dramatic than that. What a gift this was to him. Imagine how wonderful this would be in your darkest hour. How many times have you longed for that? I, I have. How much comfort would that bring? How much courage would that instill? as he turned his face to Canaan in obedience and walked. Here's the last thing I want you to see from this. Let this serve as a reminder as well, Grace, that the angels of God came to him. Let this serve as a reminder that there is an invisible spiritual realm that is every bit as real as anything you see. And it is every bit as active as the world around you that is visible. Sometimes, like here, God reveals that to his people, and other times he keeps it hidden. The upshot for us is that like the chariots of fire in Second Kings 6, there is always more going on than meets the eye. And God is Lord over it all. Grace, don't fall into the lie that you are ever alone in hardship. That's the first thing we see in this passage. Secondly, do act with integrity. Verses 3 through 5. Fresh off his encounter with the angels of God, Jacob turned his face back to Canaan and his brother. Wanting to gain his brother's favor, who he, which he had clearly lost when he left, Jacob sent, sent messages ahead promising a significant gift to Esau. Look at verse 3. And Jacob sent messages, messengers before him. He had been visited by messengers of the Lord, and he sent messengers out to his brother to the land of Seir, to the country of Edom, instructing them, thus you shall say to my Lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. Unlike his struggle with Laban, Remember 20 years of hardship with his father-in-law? Unlike his struggle with Laban, Jacob's struggle with Esau was a predicament largely of his own making. Jacob seems to acknowledge this in referring to Esau as Lord and himself as servant. Therefore, Esau was, in some ways at least, rightly upset with Jacob, and Jacob knew it. Regarding his scheme to acknowledge and, and, and perhaps atone for his deceit, We don't have perfect insight into Jacob's motivations. Was he being humble here? Was he being repentant? Was he being wise and innocent? Was he doing his best to faithfully avoid faith in God, faithfully avoid presumption 
that his brother was still murderous, that God's grace hadn't come upon him? Was he doing his best to avoid faithfully presumption and also naivete, that there was no possibility that he was still angry? Had his encounter with God filled him with the right hope and trust and that this was an expression of it? We don't know, do we? On the other hand, was perhaps the fear mentioned in the next passage already upon him? Was he already motivated by fear? Was that what was driving these words to his brother? Was this a faithless bribe? Is that all it was? Was a faithless bribe, him trying to manipulate the situation? Again, the text doesn't tell us. It just tells us what happened here. And from this, there's two simple lessons that I want you to see. First, sin has consequences. Would you write that down? <laughs> or at least at least in your mind? Sin has consequences. Grace, if your hope is in Jesus, you are completely forgiven and free. On a vertical level, there is nothing that is held against you anymore. Amen. Amen. On a vertical level, it is entirely atoned for. That is the power of the cross. You are right now wholly acceptable to God if your faith is in Christ. But on a horizontal level, when we wrong others, when we sin against others or walk in sin, the effects can drag on, sometimes for our entire lives. This then is a call. This passage is a call to be amazed by the grace of God in our lives, that he could forgive us in ways we constantly struggle to forgive others. It's a call to be amazed by God's grace, to walk in righteousness, that you might not have to wallow in the effects of sin on a horizontal level and be patient with others. Here's the second lesson. It comes from the fact that we don't know Jacob's motives. In other words, in these few verses, we can easily see that the same actions can flow from two very or more two or more very different hearts. And so here's the question. Are you ever tempted to do things merely to give the appearance of righteousness? Do you ever act in such a way where you're not seeking true righteousness, just the appearance of it? Do you ever try to disguise your lack of trust in God with spiritual language or religious talk? Do you ever present yourself as having more godly motivation than you really do? In other words, the lesson for the church today is to be people of faith and integrity. Trust in the promises of God and integrity in the way we live them out. It is certainly plausible that Jacob was attempting to faithfully bless his brother with these gifts and therein preemptively diffuse an unnecessarily volatile situation. That's possible. It is also certainly possible that his gift offerings were driven by faithless fear. And it seems that way, as we'll see in just a minute, actually. And were there in nothing more than a desperate attempt at a bribe. If it was the former, a faithful attempt, Jacob's actions were very much in line with Jesus' words in Matthew 10, 16. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. It's possible that's what he was doing here. Probably not. In that case, a few verses later, Jesus said this, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Which passage, which words of our Lord Jesus Jacob needed to hear? We don't know for sure, but, but we need to be people of, of faith and integrity. Trust in the promises of God and live it out. 
with integrity. Number three, here's the third thing. Don't be afraid. Trial is in your life right now. Trial is coming your way, perhaps. Don't be afraid. If your hope is in Christ, do not be afraid. Again, remember the first point? Don't fall into the lie of believing you're alone in hardship. We, I asked you to imagine how comforting and strengthening it would have been for God to have visited Jacob as he turned his eyes and started toward Canaan. Do you remember that? Think about that for a minute. You're looking ahead at the hardship that you're walking towards and God visits you. Remember just how, how precious would that have been? Well, consider what actually happened as soon as the trial came upon him, or at least what he imagined was the trial that would come upon him. Look at verse 6. And the messengers that Jacob had sent out returned to him saying, we went, we went to your brother Esau. And here, here's the thing. <laughs> he's coming. Uh, he's coming to meet you. And not only him, but 400 men with him. What does the text tell us? Remember, he had just encountered God's presence. The angels had visited him. He had confirmed the covenant. And what does verse 7 say? Jacob was greatly afraid, greatly distressed. And therefore, he divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. Again, Grace, God had promised to be with Jacob in his obedience. I will be with you. I will do good things and only good things to you. God had even visited Jacob at the outset to confirm this. But at the first sign of real conflict, we don't even know for sure what Esau was doing with these 400 men. We'll we'll see later that it wasn't quite what Jacob imagined. But at the first sign of the potential of real conflict, Jacob found himself greatly afraid and distressed. It's, it's obviously not hard to read negative things into what Esau was doing with 400 men. That's not hard to imagine. I think I would be afraid too. It's not hard to imagine ourselves being afraid, is it? But at the same time, you would just sort of hope that maybe hours, maybe days earlier, this visit from God would have lasted a little bit longer. The, the comfort and don't, don't you, again, don't you imagine yourself being a little bit braver than this, so, so close to the visit from God? I don't know if I do or don't, but I kind of wish that I would. Well, have you ever wished for the kind of visit Jacob received in a time of hardship? I have. <laughs> and haven't you imagined that should God bring it, both immediate comfort and future confidence? But that wasn't the case here. And what gives? This, this may be the most important thing you hear in this sermon. This is absolutely critical. I have, uh, there's two books I have in my office that I would love to give you if one is sort of the full version and one is an abbreviated version. But if this resonates with you, <laughs> this is such a critical teaching in the Bible. Okay, here it is. Faith in God's future promises. Faith in God's future promises, not his past actions, is the key to living a life without fear. I'm going to say that again. This might be the most important thing you hear. In Christ, faith in God's future promises, not in his past actions, is the key to living without fear. 
Remembering God's past faithfulness is a helpful tool to trust his future promises. But remembering God's past faithfulness is not mainly designed by God to give present confidence. A thousand past visits from God help very little right now if we do not trust God's promises right now. In other words, God's past grace is no guarantee in and of itself of his future grace. It was great that God visited Jacob on the outset of his journey, but that in itself was not a guarantee that God would be with him once his brother and the 400 men arrived. On the other hand, so so Jacob being glad for that visit wasn't the power God intended for him to endure this potential trial in faith, strength, strength of the Lord. On the other hand, Jacob did have several promises of future grace that had he trusted in them, he would have been fearless. God promised to be with Jacob through his journey to the promised land, to bless him, to do him nothing but good, to give him countless descendants in the whole of the land. Again, had Jacob rightly trusted in those future promises, Esau and 5,000 men, 10,000 men, 5 million men would have meant nothing to him. For God was on his side. And so it is for you and me. Our hope and help in present trials. Think of your trials. Think of the hardships in your life or the ones that you imagine coming. How do you live through them? Not only without fear, but with gladness and and considering them all joy, as James says. How do you do that? Our hope and help in present trials does not come from God's faithfulness in our past trials. Our hope and help Today comes from God's promises for today. Jacob seemed to understand this on some level. He seemed to get it on some level for the very next thing he did was turn to God in prayer. And that leads us to the fourth lesson. The second do. Two two don'ts. Here's the second do in the frying pan or fire. Do. Do pray. Do pray in such a way as to recite God's promises and past blessings. And there's a key clause not in your outline. If you have the outline, you need to write this in. In hope. Do pray and recite God's promises, remembering his past blessings in hope. So even though Jacob was gripped by fear at the news he'd received concerning his brother, And even though it seems that his first instinct was to take matters into his own hands, the text also tells us that he did turn to God in prayer. Admirably, his prayer recounted God's covenant promises, his unwavering faithfulness to them up to that point, and even Jacob's recognition of his unworthiness of any of it. Look at verse 9. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed the Jordan and now I've become two camps. I have so many people and things that I have two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good, and I will make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. God had commanded Jacob to return to his homeland, 
the result of Jacob's obedience seemed direct conflict with his brother and his brother's men. Consequently, Jacob offered up a prayer of desperation and confusion. (laughs) How many of you have offered up prayers like that in hardship? Prayers of desperation and confusion. He was desperate for God to rescue him from what he imagined to be his imminent death, the death of him and his women and his children. And he said, please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with their children. He's desperate for that. But he seems confused as well at his current circumstances in light of who God is and in light of what God had told Jacob. God is, he recalls, the covenant-keeping God of his grandfather and father. He had confirmed Jacob's inclusion in these covenant promises over and over again by blessing him abundantly. He had commanded Jacob to go back to the land. He had promised him the future grace of being with him to do good to him and multiplying him beyond counting. Jacob essentially confusedly wondered, well, how can this happen to me then? How how can my brother... And all of his men be coming at me like this to kill me. This, this seems in contradiction to God, what God had promised me. He acknowledged that he wasn't worthy of any of these blessings, but nevertheless, God had given them to him. Why would God go back on his word now like it seems he is doing? He was desperate and confused. Well, Grace, if only he had added hope to his desperation and confusion it would have been an excellent model of prayer for us to follow. It is good. In your trials and in your struggles, it is good to be honest with God about where you are. He knows anyway. You're not fooling him by avoiding it. But as you imagine the trials in front of you, it is good to be honest about God with where your heart is. Tell him. Be be honest with him about that. Bring all of your prayers and petitions before him. It's good to remember God's past faithfulness like Jacob did. It's good to remind yourself of God's promises and your need for his help and the fact that he alone can bring it. But those things are only truly honoring to God when they are paired with real hope in his promises. That's what Jacob seems to have been missing here. Do pray and recite God's promises and past blessings in hope. Here's the last one. Don't trust ultimately in your own plans and power. Don't trust ultimately in your own plans or power. Jacob did what he thought he could do to appease his brother and protect his family. Look at 13. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants. That's a lot of animals. And he had a plan even as he handed them over. Every drove by itself, he said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And and whose are those ahead of you? 
Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are present. They are a present sent to my Lord Esau, and moreover, he's behind us. And likewise, he instructed the second and third. So he divided these animals up, and he said, go in waves. And so maybe he's impressed with the first wave. Well, then when the second wave comes, there'll be even more. There's more. And then the third wave. It was very strategic. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. Jacob sent the presents he'd implicitly promised to Esau through the messengers initially. 550 animals. That's a lot. The text tells us in no uncertain terms why he did so, that I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterwards I shall see his face. Maybe he'll accept me. Jacob sent these gifts in three waves to add, to amplify the impressiveness of the gifts and overwhelm him with generosity that he might spare Jacob's life and that of his kinsmen. What's more, we're going to see this This is really important, and we'll see this in the next two sermons. Uh, All of 32 and 33 go together. You're going to see this. I want you to pay attention to this. But what you're going to see is that Jacob is attempting to give back the birthright and the blessing. He's attempting to do that. He's attempting to give them back, to return them to Esau. That's a different problem. But that's essentially what he is doing here. Grace, Jacob's actions serve as an important reminder that the history of his children is largely made up. Hear this. You're in a trial. Picture your trial, your hardship. You're in the fire, the frying pan, or it's coming. Picture that for real. The history of Jacob's children is largely made up of blessings that they couldn't have imagined and defeats that they never would have predicted. They won wars they shouldn't have when they were outnumbered and out-equipped. They had food and water where they they shouldn't have when they were in the middle of a desert, miles and miles and miles from any natural source. And they grew in number and influence when they shouldn't have, when they were being enslaved and persecuted. On the other hand, there were times when they were routed by armies a tiny fraction of their size, overcome with sickness, the whole camp, even though there had been no sickness among them and divided among themselves and bickering and fighting, like John said in the exhortation, when everything else was going their way. Here's the point. Remember this in your trial. To do everything right by worldly reason, to have the best scheme, the best plan, the best man-made ideas without the grace of God is to fail every time. But to do everything wrong, to have a small army to begin with and to see it winnowed down to just 300, to do everything wrong by the world's perspective, but to have the grace of God is to know nothing but victory. In other words, if God were on Jacob's side, if God had been on Jacob's side, just as he had promised, he could have offered, he could, he's in a desert, he could have reached down and grabbed two grains of sand and offered it to Esau and he would have accepted it as the most precious gift Ever. But if God were not on Jacob's side, he could have offered him the whole world. And Esau would have rejected it as a mere trifle. That is the nature and necessity of the grace of God in our lives, grace. To have it in nothing else is to know nothing but victory. To have everything else but to miss that is to know nothing but defeat. God's grace, not Jacob's negotiation prowess or yours, not your wisdom or your schemes or your cunning, 
is to be the hope of the people of God in Jesus Christ. If Jacob was to be rescued, it would be because God's grace was upon him, not from his gifts. He was seeking to get grace from his gifts, from his brother, rather than from God who alone has it to give. It doesn't seem as if Jacob really understood that here. He would, but he doesn't seem like he did here. In the end, whether he did or not, though, we need to understand it. We can't miss this. We will live successfully in eternity by trusting in the grace of God, or we will live in eternal defeat by trusting in anything else. Look at 21. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp, awaiting Esau's response. Well, what would become of this? This is the end of this sermon. What would become of this? I mean, this is a sweet cliffhanger. You're going you're gonna to be back here next week for sure. You won't get the answer then either. So you got to come back in two weeks. I mean, I'm telling you, this is job security. What will, what will become of this? What's going to happen? I mean, you probably already know the story, but would Esau accept Jacob's gifts or not? Would God be with Jacob as he said he would or not? You have to wait to find out the particulars, at least from the pulpit, but you do not have to wait to hear again the ultimate answer. This is our hope. God would remain faithful to his covenant promises, even as Jacob and his children, even you and I, come in and out of faithfulness. Indeed, God would remain faithful in his love in such a way that he would send his own one and only son to die in the place of everyone who would believe in him. What is our real hope in trial, in suffering, in difficulty? It is the Lord Jesus that he came and suffered and died in our place, that he took upon him all of the hardship that we deserve on account of our sin that he took that upon himself, that we would not have to. Jesus, this sounds a little cheesy, but I think it's good. Jesus went out of the frying pan, that is the persecution of the world, and into the fire of the forsaking of the Father, in order that we might escape both forever. Glory to God.